is here through the book of Hebrews and, and finding again and again that Jesus is depicted as better, uh, better than anything else that we could seek or find hope in. Uh, Jesus is the better revelation of God. That was at the beginning of chapter one. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Uh, we find here Jesus is the, the, he's better than the high priest. He's, he's the great high priest. And, um, and the rest that he offers is better. Just in every way, Jesus is better. And here there is this comparison to the high priest of the Old Testament. And, and I think we need to start with uh, making sure that we have an understanding of what the high priests were. Um, we, we often, we hear the word priest, we think of uh, either the um, Anglican uh, tradition or Catholic tradition and the role of a priest. And I'm not called a priest, I'm a pastor, minister. And um, so what, what's going on here? What, what is a high, high priest and what, what do they do? Uh, if we remember, uh, the writer of Hebrews here, we don't know exactly who he is, but as he writes this letter or sermon, or some call it a sermon letter, uh, he's writing to a group of Jewish Christians. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and how things work. And they're in this moment, really a, a crisis of faith, if you will, because things are not going well. We're going we're to talk about that a little bit. Uh, it, it is alluded to in multiple places in the book of Hebrews. Things are not going well, and they are considering turning away from Jesus and turning back to uh, their Jewish traditions and faith. And so crisis of faith, things not going well. And, uh, and so they're very familiar with uh, the traditions of the high priests. And they're, they're very familiar with essentially their need of a priest, a need of one to go before God, interceding for them and getting them to the point of, we can call it justification, atonement, being made right, uh, having their sins forgiven, they recognize that they have a problem and it needs to be dealt with. So as we look at this and we see Jesus being compared to the high priest, we're going to see that he's better in his work and he's better in his person and that that gives us this confidence, that gives us this hope. So let me pray. Lord, we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word, that you would meet us this morning, and that we would both embrace our brokenness, our need, and that we would find hope that you offer in the midst of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is better in his work. He is more able, he is able to accomplish more than the high priests were. So we, we see this comparison to the high priest and we find that Jesus is we're reminded that he's sinless and that's a pretty significant difference to the high priest and him that's a pretty significant difference to all human beings and Jesus Christ himself so the high priest goes in and they offer sacrifices um, and there's a there's a, a role in which they're able to sympathize with people because of their sin because of their weakness we, we see in verse 2 of chapter 5, this is he, the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. But Jesus, we see in verse 15 of chapter 4, is without sin. He's been tempted in every way as we have been, and yet he's without sin. We, we can't really even comprehend what it might be like to be without sin. To have walked through this life and never responded with impatience or anger with complaining uh, that, that Jesus reacted righteously and perfectly in every single moment as he was surrounded by brokenness 
and he was surrounded by sin, he did not sin. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's really, on some level, impossible for us to even fully understand, and yet it's the promise of Scripture. Because Jesus is God's son, verse 5 of chapter 5. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is able to walk through this world without sin, the only human being to ever do this. And it puts him in a position of being able to do this amazing work that makes his work not just this temporary work of offering sacrifice, but because he is the sacrifice himself, it is an ultimate, eternal, final work. So in comparison to the Day of Atonement that has to happen every year, what we find here is that Jesus, the priest forever, chapter 5, verse 6, the one who in verse 7 is able to save us from death, that thing that uh, creates a problem when we talk about uh, eternal, eternal, the eternal existence that we have, the, the reality of what we experience. He is able to deal with even that great enemy, death itself. And then we find this picture of Jesus passing through the heavens. What's going on here in verse 14 of chapter 4? Since then we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God. Because of this, we should hold fast to our confession. Passing through the heavens, we, we get this picture of you know, Jesus going into the sky. We think of heaven as you know, the clouds. But let's be reminded that heaven is where God is. And, and Jesus as God himself, as the one who now in his body sits at the right hand of the Father, reigning and ruling over all things. Jesus is there eternally, in perfection himself, without any problems for him, able to enter into this world and engage this world uh, out of that position of being with God in perfection. So that what he is able to offer is eternal salvation, verse 9, and being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. The eternal salvation, never ending. The picture here is reminding the Hebrews that what you were doing before was just temporary. And all of the ways in which we seek to justify ourselves, to find forgiveness for ourselves, that we we put ourselves in the position of taking care of things for just a little bit. But it's, not, it's never enough. It's not eternal. We can't do that eternal work. We can't have others do that eternal work for us. We, we think about work that we do ourselves. As a homeowner, uh, I am regularly frustrated with all the things that need to be done, right? And some of the things that I have done, and they need to be done again. One of the first big projects that we did was we, we totally redid our island. And... Uh, Maybe total. We, we redid part of the island. And uh, new countertops, and, uh, and we, we finished it, and we're like, yes, this is great. It turns out that since we did that, more has needed to be done, even on the island. That it didn't actually create this perfect island uh, for eternity. Uh, even if we think about the house, which is almost 150 years old now, and has lasted pretty well, you can imagine that when they finished the house, they were like, oh, this is, we, we finished it. But over that 150 years, there's a lot that has been done to it. Just in the 10 years that we've been there, there's a lot that has, it has needed, right? The, the work that we do is, is always temporary. But the work that the Lord has done is eternal and lasting. And that gives us incredible hope. We can have this confidence that the work that he has done is so much better than any of the work that any of us could do, that any priest 
or pastor or anybody could do for us. What he has done is final and ultimate and eternal. And so that we can look with incredible hope for justification, for being made right, for forgiveness of sins, whatever it might be, that it is absolutely enough. And, and this is exactly what we need, right? Because we seek justification in all kinds of other ways. Maybe we seek to be justified by other people. But most of all, it comes from ourselves. We try to justify ourselves. Often that's in comparison to other people. But we try to justify ourselves and make ourselves right or feel good about ourselves, right? Maybe you've either heard or said the phrase, and I think there can be appropriate places for this, you, you, you need to forgive yourself. And as Christians, I think there is a reality to, yeah, we need to be able to recognize who we are in Jesus and not live in the shame of our brokenness and sin. That there is a good and right thing about that. But the idea of just forgiving yourself does not fit with all of our brokenness. Let's imagine that uh, I, right now, I walked down and I walked up to Dan and I punched him in the face. And, uh, and then I walked back up here and said, wait, you know what? I should, you know, I need to forgive myself. <laughs> yep, you're, you're forgiven. That's, that's clearly not the way it works, right? I need to have some interaction with Dan. I would need forgiveness from Dan. There's a consequence to my brokenness and sin that was caused by me punching him in the face. So this idea of Yes, there are moments where we do need to think about ourselves rightly and who we are as created in the image of God. And if we're followers of Jesus, forgiven by him and embraced by him. But all of our brokenness is not covered by ourselves. It cannot be. But it is covered by Jesus and his ultimate and final work so that we can stop striving. Stop thinking that we need to justify ourselves, that we need to get it right before we come into his presence. No, it's his work that allows us to, with confidence, verse 16, draw near to the throne of grace, draw near to God's presence. This promise of God's work being better than the high priest, being eternal and final, that should give us great, amazing hope. But it can feel, if we just stop there, it can feel just a bit transactional. He did this thing. He's powerful. He's God. He's great. It was eternal. And, but the fact that that is true, all of that is true, makes the second point uh, even more beautiful and amazing for us. Because not only is his work better than that of the high priest, his, his very person is better. The, who he is in the work that he does and in his relationship with those that he does it for is amazing. He is close. He is able to work and live in solidarity with us so much better than the high priests were. He's able to sympathize with us in our brokenness and our weakness. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us, because he is able to sympathize, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. His very person Being God, being sinless, being the son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity, he actually is able to enter into relationship with us in ways that we can't even fully comprehend. But the promise is there nonetheless. The priest could sympathize. We go through difficult things and we want somebody, understandably so, 
who would understand us. And often, if we've gone through something really difficult, we really want somebody who's been something through something very similar. There, there is a comfort in that, right? And, and, and the last thing that we would want is somebody to come alongside us who is uh, privileged and entitled and never experienced anything difficult in their lives. Like that, that's not going to be helpful for us in the midst of something uh, difficult. And so there's a good picture with the high priest, right? Verse 2. The high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. There's something good about the weakness that we have. I mean, I hope at some level, as a pastor, in my weakness and and brokenness, which I have way more of than I wish I did, I hope that that allows me just to be a friend and pastor and care for folks uh, in a a way that is God-honoring and helpful. And that, that would be true for all of us as we walk together in life, that we would in the midst of our own suffering, in the midst of our own struggles, that we would be able to come alongside those struggling and bring the grace of God to bear in that situation. But what we find here is the promise of those, all of us who experience all kinds of weakness, all kinds of suffering, all kinds of of temptation, is one who is able to sympathize with us and understand us in every way that we experience temptation. What does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, what we find here is a picture of the incarnation. This isn't a typical Christmas passage, but that's what's happening here. That God has written a story, and the story is real and true. It's not just one that he's written on paper. And then he has entered into the story himself in a new and deeper way in the incarnation. Uh, And as he does that, he enters into relationship with us in a way that he's able to understand us. So he has this solidarity with us in our temptation. Verse 15, again, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, that's not to say he's been tempted with every specific moment that we have been, but it is this categorical picture. He's been tempted in all of the ways that we have. This is, this is a miraculous claim and statement. Yet it's in the word of God given to us to bring us hope. And, and we question it at times. Wait, wait how, uh, understandably, there's a mystery going on here that uh, we, we think, well, how could God, who didn't sin, be tempted in the ways that we are? A good person uh, wouldn't really be able to understand the temptation as we do. C.S. Lewis, who thinks of a lot of things uh, in brilliant ways, um, and certainly better than I do. I'm going to read a quote from him, from Mere Christianity, that addresses this very idea. He says, a silly idea is current, that good people, it's still current, this was written many years ago, a silly idea is current, that good people do not know what temptation means. So Jesus, could, he's, he's, he's a good person, and he wouldn't know temptation because he's good. This is an obvious lie. I would like him to explain why it's so obvious, but he does. Uh, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, 
because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows the full, in the full, to the full, what the temptation means. The only complete realist. Jesus entered into temptation in, in ways beyond what we can even imagine. And what the writer here is telling us in the word of God is that as a result, he is able to sympathize with us. That should give us great hope in the midst of our temptation. The second way in which we see that God's, Jesus's solidarity with us plays out is not only in our temptation, but in our suffering. In our suffering. Again, remember that the Hebrews are suffering greatly. I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. Because this, this is what they're experiencing. So this is something that they know clearly as they read all of these words. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is after you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since, that you, knew, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and, a, and an abiding one. I mean, hear what they have experienced. Publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, or being partners with those experiencing that, You accepted the plundering of your property, but you knew that there was something better. Jesus is better than whatever it is you might be experiencing. They they suffered in in ways that we probably can't imagine. If we were to experience things that that would fall into those categories that they were experiencing, referenced in Hebrews 10, that we we would not be excited about it. We would not be, we're constantly fighting for things to be fair, for things to be right. That is our expectation. We don't preach a health and wealth gospel uh, here at Fountain Square Presbyterian Church, but the reality is because of the world in which we live, it, we, we just expect it. And maybe it's not like fancy cars and uh, you know, being able to fly and do whatever we want, but it, we expect things to be pretty fair, pretty good. We've got a standard that when, when things don't live up to that, we, we think that something is wrong, and we, and we look for someone to blame, and often that ends up being God. It's not fair. And we look around and we think, things are going pretty well for those around me because we all do a pretty good job of putting on a, a good face, right? Making it look like things are, are all good, even when they're not, even when we're struggling. So that it makes it that much harder as we look around, or certainly if we look around on social media where things look great for everybody, right? Then... When something goes wrong for us, we think this isn't fair. This isn't the way that it's supposed to be. And yet we find Jesus, the one who we're united with, the one who uh, we're created for relationship with, who wants that with us, that he suffers. And he invites us in as he invites us into union with him. But we we see here in verses 7 and 8. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered in deep ways and he suffered on the cross. This death that he didn't deserve. And and, in the cross, we could spend a long time talking about how amazingly horrible it was. But there's even 
a more significant picture is, is this reference to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane here, crying out with tears, with loud cries. Th- that is this recognition that he's about to be separated from the Father, the one whom he's had perfect union, communion, relationship with for eternity past. He's about to be separated from him. That is a worse fate than the death on the cross. And he knows that that's coming and he cries out and he's praying that it wouldn't happen. He knows what suffering is like. And there's a sense in which he also invites us into that. If we've been in the church, we're pretty familiar with Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The idea of denying yourself is anathema to us as, as Americans, even in the church, even when we've memorized this verse for years and years. Denying yourself? What? It doesn't fit. I, I, I follow Jesus because he's supposed to make things good. He's supposed to make things easy or comfortable or happy. And happiness becomes this goal that we have. And happiness often defined as just a lack of discomfort. Not with any positive direction. But what we find here, all through the scripture, certainly here in Hebrews, is that there's a direction they're headed. It is incredibly positive, And it is Jesus himself. It is the one who is better than everything else. He is the one on offer. And yeah, it comes... In the midst of suffering, it comes with suffering even, that we would deny ourselves. But the, the, the picture is that in the midst of that, he is with us. He is in solidarity with us. And certainly more than the high priest could ever be. Certainly more than any one of us could be for one another. William Lane says this in his book on Hebrews, When the lash is falling on you, he rushes in so that it falls upon him as well. When you are treated with contempt, he experiences the humiliation that you feel. When you are bruised, he feels the pain. He is able to feel our weakness with us. That's this picture that we find of the one who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. That he jumps into the suffering with us. And that there is, as a part of this story, something greater for us. And the thing that is greater for us is him. Because of the work that he has done. He's offering us something better. And he's not offering all of the difficult things to go away. He's offering himself in the midst of it. And if you've experienced suffering in real and deep ways, and you've had somebody come alongside you in the midst of that and minister to you just by being there with their presence, by sometimes speaking words of comfort You have a small picture of what it is to to experience Jesus, the one who is better than anything else, so that we might rest and hope in him, that we might move toward a deeper life with him. This is what is on offer in the gospel, so that we can fulfill these applications that are given at the beginning here. Verse 14 of of chapter 4. Let us hold fast our confession. This confession of who Jesus is. This confession of his work in this world. And then in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace 
that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That we would draw near to the the throne of grace is the presence of God himself, that we would experience him. That is what we're invited into. And we can do so with confidence because he did this work and he comes alongside us in the midst of our brokenness and suffering and temptation and failing and experiencing his forgiveness and getting up and trying again. He's there with us in the midst of it. Let us pursue him and find relationship with him as our great hope.